Yeah, let's talk about China because I'm Frank Gaffney's got me on his show every week now, talking mainly about. I think the the intersection between big American corporations, Wall Street, China. Yeah, it's really bad. Enemy within. Yeah, it's they are. This is the greatest uh, political existential threat to America in all of American history. And we've never seen anything like it. We've never had another country inside of the U.S. like this. Well, that's, a, that's exactly the point I made. He had me on a webinar last week, and that was exactly my point. I said, this is not, this is not the Cold War with Soviet Union, where they were sitting over there with their arsenal of nukes, and we've got ours, and we're not really interconnected. Now they've got us completely interconnected with manufacturing, and yes. then they've also got us interconnected with elite capture. Yeah, and they're inside all of our institutions. Every our single one. Institutions, right? Every single one. So. Yeah, it's incredibly dangerous. I think also, I don't know if you want to go into it, I think the geopolitical situation in Europe is fascinating right now. I yeah, let's talk about never that. Never seen anything like that in our lifetimes. I think Ukraine is very nuanced. I'm really just skeptical of what's going on there. I, you know, and, and I have I, a friend who, who was in, in, in Russia and Ukraine for over a decade. Mm -hmm. So he knows. Yeah. See, and I have a kind of an emotional connection to Ukraine. Both sides of my family, Jewish, Ukrainian from Odessa. Well, sure, then. So there's that feeling. The thing that, and I'm probably more pro-Ukrainian, but I hate the idea that we're going to sacrifice the American economy for Ukraine. Like that, I struggle. Like I don't get that. Well, they're sacrificing the, the European economy. Right. And we get American politicians on both sides of the aisle saying that Ukraine is the most important thing, period. Well, no, how about feeding American people? How and about people making sure? will fly Ukraine flags that won't fly American flags. It's incredible. We should probably be having this discussion on we camera. We should be talking right now. The Walton Show for July 21. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to the Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Uh, as we all know, Washington, D.C. today enjoys almost unchecked power. And, and for the most part, this power is in the hands of people who respect neither our institutions, our citizens, um, nor especially our founding document, the uh, Constitution of the United States. The genius of the founders and the genius of the Constitution is it provides guardrail, guardrails and pr protections against uh, concentration of power aggregating in a few hands, which we know is the source of tyranny throughout the world and throughout history. Uh, but in the past century in America, the Constitution as drafted and ratified has been either simply ignored or, as my friend Mark Meckler puts it, uh, creatively lawyered by the Supreme Court rulings which expanded federal power. Uh, the problem of restoring the federal government to its uh, proper limited place is huge and, and some of us would say almost intractable. Uh, yet entering the fray with a big idea is Mark, my friend. <laughs> He founded the Convention of the States, which calls for using Article 5 of the Constitution to rein in the federal government's power. As most of you know, Mark also co-founded the Tea Party Patriots and 
was uh, interim CEO of the uh, social media app Parler and uh, has been involved in, in the social media wars uh, within the trenches firsthand leadership experience. So, Mark, welcome back. It's great to be with you. <laughs> a lot of big things to talk about. A lot of big things. And I think you and I talked beforehand. We've also got, we're maybe curious about China and the Ukraine. But Yeah, absolutely. Geopolitics, more interesting today, more complicated today than ever before in my lifetime, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So Article 5 Constitution, uh, what's, give us a, the, the primer. So Article 5 of the Constitution contains two clauses. It's the ways that we can amend our Constitution. The first clause is how we've always done it. 27 amendments, two-thirds of each House of Congress proposes an amendment. Once they agree on that, that goes to the states for ratification, takes 34 states to ratify the second clause gets introduced to the Constitution literally two days before the end of convention in 1787. The convention's almost over. Colonel George Mason stands and he says, we have a problem. We drafted a document that gives Congress the power to propose amendments, but we didn't give that power to the people acting through the states. And then he asks a question, are we so naive that we believe that a federal government that becomes a tyranny would ever propose amendments to restrain its own tyranny? Now, I've asked that question all over the country. People usually laugh because human nature, humans don't restrain their own tyranny. And so he proposes that we give this power to the states. And what happens at conventions is really unique. If you've ever read Madison's notes, everything is contentious at convention. But on this issue, Madison's notes say nincom. Those are short for two Latin words, no comment, no debate, no discussion, not one objection to Mason's suggestion that we give the states this power. And in fact, unanimously inserted to give the states the power to call a convention when two thirds of states agree, propose amendments, and then send those amendments out to the states for ratification by three quarters of states. So that's the project I'm working on, is so, to, so, to so, get the states so, to do so, that. So step one is to get enough state legislatures together to say, we'd like to call a constitution, uh, a convention, right. to revisit the constitution. How many states need to do that? 34 states. That's two-thirds of states right now. And how many do we have so far? 19 so far. And what was the kind of debate they had in those legislatures? You've been at this for how long? For Nine years. Nine years. Okay. Yeah. Um, so generally speaking, there's one objection and one objection only. Well, first I would say, on balance, almost all the Democrats in the legislatures oppose it. Oppose. It's, oppose it. And it's really, it's not on any basis of reason. It's very tribal. I think it's because... Fair enough, I'm a conservative, I'm a known conservative. Most of the people who support it are known conservatives. So they object on, on those grounds primarily. The only substantive objection that's made, and it's made by Democrats and a few Republicans at the fringe, uh, is that there could be potentially runaway, what they call a runaway convention. The idea is you gather in convention, we've proposed a convention for three subject matters, fiscal restraint on the federal government, scope and power jurisdiction restraints on the federal government and term limits on the federal government, including the deep state. So they say if you get in convention, it could run away and they could deal with anything. That's not true, but that's the argument. Well, there's debates about whether you can even limit the scope of that convention. I mean, you say you've got three things here, but it, it seems like it also, also could get opened up to anything anybody wants to throw on the table. I think that it's fair to say there are debates. I would say they're not reasoned debates. And I hate to be so harsh well, to my opponents. Well, welcome to America. Yeah. Welcome well, to politics. Here's, and here's what I mean by that. Like, <laughs> and I think if, you're a, if you consider yourself a conservative or a libertarian, one of the yeah. things that we pride ourselves on is the use of reason in an argument. Yeah. And reason requires reference to history and logic. 
if you look at the history and the logic surrounding the idea of a convention of states, we've had 41 conventions of states in American history. That includes the 1787 convention. But these There's were never... conventions of states to amend their own constitution. They're actually in what would be called interstate conventions. Okay. These are times that the states have gotten together, not under Article 5, yeah. but to do other things as states. They commission delegates. They send them to a convention. They tell them what they may and may not do. There's never been a runaway convention in American history. So the 19 states that have approved it, are they all red states? Yes. Yeah, all of them are red states. And so I've, I've lost track. I mean, how many so-called <coughs> red states do we have in the country? We don't think we have 34. 31 states have both houses controlled by Republicans. There really? are two states with split legislatures, Minnesota and Virginia. I will confidently predict we're going to flip Minnesota this session, this election, Virginia will finish flipping in 2023. There's a Democrat majority, one house in the Senate. That's going to flip. And then I think either New Hampshire uh, or Nevada flips as well. I think we'll be at 34 states by 2024. First off, let's let's anchor this for anybody watching or listening. Uh, we can find the information on your website where you've got basically a terrific summary of how that's working and who's behind it. Yeah, what's, that's called the, the executive website? summary, conventionofstates.com. Okay, that's pretty easy. Yep. Conventionofstates.com. And you've got a lot of interesting people behind this. Uh, who who are you? Mark Levin, I notice here, and uh, um, Ben Carson, and uh, Glenn Beck, and uh, Alan West. I mean, it's a really interesting cross-section of conservatives. Are there any liberals backing this? No, none. And I would say, again, I don't think it's it's not ideological, and it's really not partisan, the whole effort is just to say power should be at the states instead of at the federal government. But I think the reason that you don't see liberals supporting it, and I talk to a lot of people, liberals behind the scenes that do, but they look at that lineup that you just presented, and, you know, it's Hannity, it's Shapiro, it's Beck, it was Limbaugh, all of these people, and they think, I'm a liberal, I can't identify. We've well, got Ben Shapiro on the list. Mm -hmm. If he's here, nobody <clears throat> else is going to get a word in edgewise. I think that's true. He'll talk twice as fast as anybody else as <laughs> no, well. faster than that. Yeah. <laughs> and he's a good friend and supporter. He saw it way back and just said the federal government's never going to rein itself in. Well, but is there other, I mean, I worry about a runaway convention in this sense is that you've got a list here. You've got some great things of the list, which I want to get dig into, like uh, a balanced budget amendment or limiting Supreme, Supreme Court justices to nine. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, in the, it's not in the Constitution. Correct. Now, Congress can vote as many as it Correct. wants. Um, Upper, and they're talking about it, right? So there's open discussion about it's packing. It's open, it's vivid, it's right. happening, it's happening as we speak. Right. Uh, but this is a this is a conservative wish list. This is a list wish list for conservatives, libertarians, people like us who, yes. who really don't want that massive. But couldn't you also have a liberal wish list? I mean, wouldn't there be a couldn't this open itself up to say, gee, we really want to mandate or have have part of the Constitution this. Uh, this this thing, something about abortion, something about marriage, whatever? No. No. No, and here's the reason. If you look at the way that the resolution is drafted, yeah, it only allows a discussion of limitations on the power of the federal government. So the, so it's drafted like this. The, the legislature of the state, fill in the blank, applies to Congress under Article 5, I'll cut through this, calling for convention, proposing amendments... <coughs> imposing fiscal restraints on the federal government, limiting the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and limiting the terms of office for its officials and members of Congress. Is this what 19, That's it. That's this the what 19, model 19 states have all That's passed? That's correct. Yeah. So this is all going to go the direction we want it to go. 
Well, so those are the rails. I call it the law of convention. In other words, you're going to have 34 states agree to that in advance. They're going to commission their delegations based on that because that's what their state legislatures have said. So that provides the ground rules or the, the guardrails for convention. In the event somebody in convention were to stand up, for example, from California, my original home state, and say, hey, we'd like to propose the repeal of the Second Amendment, well, that would increase the power of the federal government, give them the ability to regulate firearms in a much more restrictive way. That does not fit within that resolution. According to every procedure that's ever been used in a convention, any conservative or libertarian could stand so, and so, make a motion that that's so, out of order. So, so the key phrase in here is limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government. That's correct. That's the key phrase. That is the key phrase. I don't want to stop with that because it seems like you could get everything else within that one. But uh, um, And you've also got term limits here for correct. officials. Now, how about term limits for the staff in Congress, and how about term limits for the administrative state? So that's crafted for that very you specifically. Because you founded the Tea Party, yeah. and at the time, 2010, and I was right there with you, uh, you know, the concern was we want to get people elected to Congress who are going to do the right thing. Yeah. Naive, weren't we? Yes, uh, we were. We were naive. <laughs> I was, speaking for myself. Yeah. Naive. We kind of define naive yeah. there because I, I was right with you. And but so we got a, a lot of the right people elected and then nothing happened. And I think as we've watched this, what's happened is we see, no, wait a second. It's not the elected officials necessarily. It's who they get as their staff who are who are wizened in the ways of Washington. And then also we got this vast administrative state. Yes. Which we just saw with the federal federal uh, Supreme Court's EPA ruling reining it in that all the power was over there. So, so that particular we, provision Mr. is Mr. drafted. Notice that it says federal officials and members of Congress. Okay. And the reason for that is, I agree with you, I'm marginally a fan of term limits for members of Congress, marginally. I'm not 100% sure about that idea. Yeah, I'm absolutely opposed to it if we don't limit the terms of their staffers and the bureaucrats as well. All we do is empower what we now know as the deep state. And so I would be opposed to it if somebody said term limits on members of Congress, but not staff and bureaucrats. I think that's very dangerous. So I think you hit on an important distinction. Well, the, uh, uh, this is the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with the great Mark Meckler, and we're talking about uh, the Constitution, uh, uh, Article 5, having a convention of the states to talk about uh, reining in the powers of the federal government, which, uh, which has to happen or... Uh, or uh, fill in the blank if we don't, if yeah. we end up not doing that. So when you get into these, who who is close now in, in the states? Who people listening or watching? What states are actively considering this? So most of the state legislatures today are out of session. Okay. Most are part-time legislatures. Right. Legislatures still in session, still considering right now would be Ohio and Pennsylvania. So those are probably the two targets on our list for the rest of the year possibly in a long shot basis, North Carolina, they'll come back in for what's called a veto session, uh, overriding governor gubernatorial vetoes. So they could consider it then. I don't think it's likely, but North Carolina is close. We passed it through the house there previously. We've passed it through the Senate previously, never in the same session. They've got to be in the same session. Now the original convention <clears throat> was sent with the states were sent with a mandate that you're supposed to I think they were just supposed to improve or edit the uh the articles of confederation that this is that is that correct 
No, and you're going to love this because you're a history guy and you appreciate history. I think most people would say that's correct. And I think that's what we were taught until we actually discovered the truth about 10 years ago. Professor Rob Nadelson was the first person ever to pull from the National Archives the commissions of the men sent to convention. They actually came with documents that said what their authority was and what their power was. Imagine being the first to open that drawer, pull those documents out. And what the commissions say on seven of nine of them is that- Who, the, who wrote the commissions? The states themselves, states, state okay, legislatures. Right, yeah, so ahead. they're saying to their delegates to convention, here's what you may and may not do. Seven out of nine of the states said that the commissioner has any and all authority necessary to render the federal constitution adequate for the exigencies of the union. There was no limitation on their power. This idea that they were sent to amend the Articles of Confederation comes because after seven states do this, Congress weighs in. And often, as you know, Congress today is behind the American people, right? They see something happening, they try to jump in front of it. They issued what they even phrased as, we recommend. It was a recommendation to the states. They had no authority under the Articles of Confederation to call a convention or propose amendments. So they recommend that the states gather. They use the same language, but then they also add the phrase, to amend the Articles of Confederation. So that's where this idea that these men exceeded their mandate comes from. It's absolutely untrue and frankly builds a slander on the framers of the Constitution. These were men who deeply believed in the concept of honor. The idea that they would all just blow off their states and their commissions is pretty outrageous. Well, I'm glad they did, but it turns out they didn't. They did not. Now, but right. that means that the secret envelope, though, is not secret in this case because we, we're going to have marching orders that every state is giving their their delegates absolutely and they'll all it's all be identical language and they've got to stick to this well i would say they could limit that yeah. in other words you could say to your delegation we don't like term limits so we don't allow you to vote on term limits i always wonder you know i wander into these topics and i know so little you know i'm not trained as a lawyer right. you are i mean what what's what are the good lawyers who are on the other side of this who are philosophically aligned with us saying why this is a bad idea. Heritage, I know, has come out and said they don't like the idea. They have not, actually. Heritage has essentially taken a neutral position. You mean I shouldn't believe what's in Wikipedia? No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Once again. You know, and I, I went and I had a meeting at Heritage. Mark Levin was with me. Yeah. A bunch of other luminaries, Rob Nadelson, Mike yeah, Ferris. Smart, smart people. Yeah, smart people. There was a discussion that took place. Some of their scholars were there. They took no position. They said, here's some pros and here's some cons. Okay, so nobody took, so what about the people who've taken the, uh, what do they say? So they say that they believe that it can't be reined in, you know, just the basic runaway convention argument. But I would add, and this is important. They're saying the convention can't be reined That's in. That's correct. When people no matter show what you up, say, wherever they, they show it. up, they show them in Las Vegas, which would be the yeah. most fun place to have it. <laughs> I think it'll be DC because these guys are going to decide where it is. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so here's, here's the interesting distinction for guys like you and I. There are no scholars on the right of national renown who believe there can be a runaway convention. And that's a pretty audacious statement to make, mm -hmm. but it's a fact. There are none, zero. So when you look at the scholars on the right of note, I would throw out names of guys who are on my legal advisory board. Robbie George from Princeton, I would argue the greatest living conservative constitutional scholar. He says no runaway. Randy Barnett from Georgetown says no runaway. So it's not that you can't find any lawyers who will say it, but they have nowhere near the stature, renown, publication, reliance by the legal community as the people who serve on our legal advisory board and say, it can't run away. That's ridiculous. 
Now, how are you funding this effort? Do you have a do you have a foundation behind you that people can contribute to, or what's the uh, what, what's the there economic engine? There are two, two enti- entities that are involved. There's a 501c3, so that's the Convention of States Foundation, right, yeah. as you mentioned. That's the educational arm of all of this, just educating people about Convention of States. And then the activist side is Convention of States Action, and that's the 501c4. Mm-hmm. And uh, the budget is probably 80% 501c4 at this point because most of it involves lobbying state legislators. Now, this got generated when we had the Supreme Court controlled by the left. That's correct. Now we've got a presumably a 6-3 majority. Five and a half. <laughs> maybe maybe five four. I don't know. I think there are a couple of half votes yes, in there. Exactly. I, we can. Um, does this lessen the need for this that you've got a Supreme Court that's actually paying attention? Because we we both think the original Constitution was fine. Yeah, absolutely. If we'd stuck to it, right. but we haven't. Right. And so now we need to go back in and, and amplify and clarify and, and get some of this stuff nailed down that the, the language of the Constitution doesn't do. Is it as necessary now that we've got these rulings, for example, the EPA ruling, which to me was the biggest one? Yeah, I agree. Interesting. I mean, I would say morally you've got the big ruling in Roe versus Wade, but if you want to look at what's going to have the most long-term effect on our country— from a governing perspective, it's clearly West Virginia versus EPA. Yeah, Roe v. Wade was the big moral right. ruling, but, but that didn't really eliminate government structure. It just sent the debate back to right. uh, the states. In, in, in an interesting way, they're both sort of federalist decisions, right? Because West Virginia versus EPA says you, you don't have the power to do that, so it's about separation of powers. If they're not doing that, that stuff goes mostly ends up back in the states, right? Or it has to be legislated upon at the federal government. So the question is, do we still need this with a court like this? My answer is unequivocally yes. I'm just glad to have the Supreme Court in this fight. Here's why I say yes, as a lawyer especially. To get cases to the Supreme Court is hard. It takes a lot of time. Mm -hmm. It takes some good luck. It takes the right fact pattern, the right plaintiff, the right circuit court, the right lawyers, get to the right makeup of the Supreme Court to get these things done. And then we don't always get them done all the way that we would like to see them done as conservatives. And sometimes, frankly, because the court is doing good conservative things, I'm of the mind that the court has done some things that I think are legally correct where I still don't like the result, right? But as a conservative, I say that's the correct legal result. So the calling a convention allows us to do bigger, broader things more rapidly than the Supreme Court can do. I think we're now allies in this fight. So the... You've, you've, you've answered my question, I think, about the runaway part. One of the things that jumped out doing a little research was that uh, in 1949, six states, California, Florida, you know, proposed an amendment that enabled the United States to participate in a world federal government. Terrifying, huh? Terrifying. <laughs> so <laughs> we're, that's not going to jump out. Of well, the, so here, uh, I think this is really important to dig a little bit in, into let's this dig a little in, bit more. Because there have been people trying to do this... Uh, We've had over 400 applications in American history for a convention of states. We've never reached the requisite two-thirds of applications. So here's why I think it's important that we go a little deeper in this argument. So I've I've been on your show. I've been on all the shows, Shapiro and Levin and all those guys. And I always make this offer. I'll make it to your listeners. Here's my personal email address. It's mmechler, M-M-E-C-K-L-E-R at cosaction.com. The reason I'm giving it to you, if you're concerned about the kind of amendment you or I, Bill, wouldn't like, then tell me what that amendment is, 
just in layman's terms, not in legal terms, and then give me the list of the 38 states that will ratify it. And so I've made that offer, I'm not joking, millions of people, 9 million, 10, I don't know how many millions. I've never gotten an email, not from the crazy person, not an, an email, because you can't do it. I've tried. Right, so I'll give you the best example I know. I hear all the time from conservatives, we're going to lose the Second Amendment. I'm a big gun guy. We love guns in my family. My mom was a cop. My son's a Marine. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't put the Second Amendment at risk. And then I say, well, do you understand the layout of the states? 31 states, both houses controlled by Republicans. More importantly, you today, Bill, could carry your handgun inside of 24 state legislatures. It's legal. You could carry a long gun, an AR loaded, slung over your back into 14 state legislatures and sit in the gallery and watch the proceedings. It takes only 13 state legislatures to stop an amendment. Do we really think we couldn't find 13 state legislatures to say we're not going to repeal the Second Amendment? Let me jump into that issue. I had John Lott on. You know John? Oh, yeah. I love John. He's wonderful. Well, those legislatures are actually being very self-protective because it turns out that if you have concealed carry, you're a lot less likely to have a mass shooting than Absolutely. if you don't. And I think he said some unbelievable number like 90 six or 97 percent of the mass shootings occurred in so-called gun-free gun zones. zones yeah and they had they had a, a sign out in front that basically says if you're a mass shooter come on in yeah i mean we just saw this in in the last mass shooting in the mall that gun had a gun-free policy that that mall had a gun-free policy luckily that's not enforceable there and they had constitutional carry and we had a young guy carrying a handgun this was in indiana yeah, yeah. stop the shooter incredible act of bravery by a guy who was carrying under a constitutional carry scheme. Can I go into my favorite? On I've got a yeah. list here. It's on the website. There's a list of some of the things that Mark thinks we can do. I mean, obviously, an upper limit on federal taxes. I'm, 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 I'm good with that. Uh, uh, sunsetting existing federal taxes. Uh, but my favorite is uh, imposition of generally accepted accounting principles. Now, that just jumped out of me. What, how does this fit into a constitution? Well, this is really interesting to me. And, and for Which me, is, it's a really good idea. Well, so here's where it comes personally to me. So yeah. in the Tea Party days, somehow I managed to be in a meeting with high level officials at OMB and I don't uh, Office of Management and Budget. I don't remember how I came to be there or who they were exactly. And I was asking questions about generally accepted accounting principles. I'm a lawyer, I've done finance stuff, I understand the law. We have to operate according to those, right? Any publicly traded company has to operate according to those. And I asked them if they operated according to generally accepted accounting principles. And they said no. And I said, well, what set of principles do you operate according <laughs> to? And this was the literal answer. It's pretty ironic. They didn't mean it this way. They said, well, we don't have any principles. <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to jump on your <laughs> mind. <laughs> and I just thought... Princi principles? And I principles? just thought, well, no, I understand that, but I meant accounting principles, right? And literally, they do whatever they want. That's how they do government accounting. I call it the Skittles and Rainbows method of accounting. Like, it's just whatever you want. And so they have stuff that's black... Accounting, right, meaning it's off book completely. They don't account for it. Sure. They have long-term liabilities. Imagine if you're a corporation, you're like, hey, we're not going to count the $120 trillion in long-term liability. I mean, we'll just pretend that that's never going to come due. Like, you'd go to federal prison for well, that. Well, our balance sheet of the United States looks a lot like Enron's balance Absolutely. sheet. Absolutely, yeah. Because, you know, I ran a public company, CEO, and you got to, you know, it, 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 it's important to get it right. 
And but I also worked my way through business school teaching accounting, inflicting accounting on would be accounting majors. Yeah. So I'm this is you know this, this stuff. I'm in and almost all the debt of the federal government you never see. It right. shows up over here. If we have one place to add it up, right. And had contingent liabilities and net present value of different kinds of things the government owned. I mean, I, it, our our debt to GDP is not a hundred percent. It's more like four hundred percent. The best number that I've heard, and I used to work with Tom Coburn, and sure, this was yeah. kind of his passion. Yeah, great guy, great guy. He said uh, he believes that we're about a hundred and fifty trillion in debt at this point, as opposed to the on book thirty trillion. Well, that's the 30 times 150, yeah, five. that's five times, yeah. 500, five yeah, X. that's about where it is, yeah. It's incredible, and and those are numbers that, frankly, nobody understands. I don't, I don't know what that means, I barely, I don't think I understand what a trillion means, uh, the average person. Oh, I don't either. Right. I mean, we don't. No, it's outside of the concept that the human mind can grasp, and so <laughs> we actually, I think the American people deserve to know that. You know, it's not on their bill, but I, like one of the things that I would love to see is that people should have to pay their income taxes. They should have to pay them. Write the check. Well, Milton Friedman came up with that in World War II. Absolutely. I love Milton, but that was a huge blunder. Explain why he did that. You already know. I know. I don't know the story. Well, what, he was in the price board or one right. of the agencies that was trying to win World War II, and they were looking at collecting taxes, wanted to make sure everybody paid, and he came up with the idea, well, let's just withhold oh, I didn't know it came from, from, from your paycheck. And, so now people have no idea. And... If you could do any one thing to make people aware of the taxes they pay, is don't have them, don't have it withheld. Have it, uh, have them write a check out to FICA. Have yeah. them write a check out to uh, health. You know all the different... people would be angry. Yeah, that's what would happen immediately. Well, so let's let's put that one in the. Uh, yeah, I like it. <laughs> no federal, no federal withholding on your paycheck, and of course, you know I've got Kenny here. He's an independent contractor. I think. People who are independent contractors, I think, are a lot more aware of the tax burden. That uh, Yeah, they know the pain because they're cutting the checks. So I'm wondering, maybe a little off our Constitution, our Article 5 convention, but could you really put something like generally accepted counting principles into the Constitution? You could, but I think that here's the danger in that. When If you say gap accounting, that seems simple. Well, the danger you know, is those guys up in Connecticut yeah, who uh, are not conservatives right and you know how complex that is too right oh, when you yeah. say generally accepted accounting principles it sounds simple so i think in that case could you do it maybe but the devil's in the details what does that actually mean when you say that to the federal government and yeah, i don't I, think you could actually yeah. impose the exact same standards it's a different thing when you're talking about a government as much as i love putting the federal government into the gap world i think it's really fraught i would put take this one off your list but well, you can come to convention as I'll a come, delegate I'll, and I'll argue against in. that. Yeah. Now, what about the limiting Supreme Court justices to nine members? That that's right on the table now. Yeah, I think it's right on the table. I, I don't. I'm not even saying nine is the right number. I, I think there needs to be some limitation on the process, right? Simply so that you can't have Congress just pack it. Here's another scheme that I've heard a good argument is potentially. No adding justices to the United States Supreme Court unless a supermajority of the states agree. All right, so I think that's a different way. Put the to... power back to the states, yep. not in Congress. Exactly. I think that's the right way to do it. So if you want to change the number, let's go back to everybody and say, what do you think that number ought Correct. to be? That's a fair way to do it. Uh, this is the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Mark Meckler, and we're talking about the Convention of the States and, and reining in the power of the federal government. And 
it seems like a good idea. I when I first heard about it, I was kind of in the runaway camp where I thought, gee, we get everybody together, we're likely to end up with a worse constitution rather than a better constitution. Right. You don't think so? No, and look, I think fear and skepticism are the natural approach and the correct approach. Right? I just think when you talk about something like this, anytime you talk about, I would say, big transformational ideas, I'm a conservative, and that means my first response is going to be, mm, I don't know. You know, We've got this incredibly beautiful document. Here's the thing about that document, and I think we opened the show with this. We don't have that document anymore. Right. If we did, I would say, no, leave it alone. Even if Even imperfect, leave it alone. If you were to order a United States Constitution today from the government publishing office, you can do this. It's about 130 bucks. It doesn't look anything like the pocket constitution you might think of. It's over 3,000 pages. It says United States Constitution on the spine. Yeah, I know. You're looking surprised. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I'm, 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 this is first it, I've heard Okay, of so it. you get it, and what I've it contains. i my little pocket guide. We all have those. Yeah. Order it from them. What you'll get is a 3,000-page document that contains every case ever issued by the Supreme Court telling us what that beautiful, succinct Constitution means. And oh. in there is everything you and I don't like. It's the expansion of all federal government power comes out of cases issued by the Supreme Court. The expansion of Commerce Clause interpretation, the expansion of necessary and proper clause. So it'll take the language of the Constitution and it'll drop a footnote saying, except in all these cases where we've gutted it. Well, I'll give you the best example yeah. and the simplest example. The Interstate Commerce Clause, it's very simple. It says Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce. What that meant to the founders, you're talking 1787, the language, the word regulate didn't mean what we think of. They didn't have a federal register. There were tens of thousands of pages of regulation. They wouldn't have tolerated that. It meant to regularize or make regular. That's what you would find in a Webster's Dictionary in 1787. Smooth it out, right? Make it easy for people. The reason for that in 1787, you have a trade war going on between New York and New Jersey over tariffs. Most of the goods from overseas are coming in from through the port of New York. They impose tariffs and then they get shipped to New Jersey. New Jersey said, this is unfair, right? And so they're going to come to military blows. So in convention, the men there say, this is not going to work. We've got to give some power to Congress to smooth over interstate commerce. By the way, commerce in 1787 doesn't mean business, which is what we think it means. In 1787, it means the shipment of goods. So, so narrow power. So regulate meant make regular or to make... Uh, smooth. Easy. Easy. Smooth. Yeah. Okay. And then commerce meant the shipment of goods. So the, the wow. power was make smooth the shipment of goods across state lines. In the 1930s, there's a case, Wickard v. Filburn in Ohio. There are limits on how much wheat you can grow. And the power comes from, according to the federal government, from the interstate commerce clause. And they say, if to this farmer, he grows wheat, it's for his own consumption. Federal government says, you grew too much wheat, we're going to penalize you. And he says, wait, you, you can't do that. I didn't buy wheat on the open market. I didn't sell wheat on the open market. It's certainly not involved in interstate commerce. And they said, exactly, the interstate commerce clause. So the farmer's baffled. The Supreme Court agrees. And this is what they say. Well, the farmer, because he didn't buy wheat on the open market, affected interstate commerce. Oh, my God. So the, the ruling actually says, and this is insane. This is what you're thinking. This because is insane. it didn't affect the demand curve. There was, it, was, it was an effect. So what does that yeah. mean? It means if you don't do something, you've done something, and Congress can now regulate you. 
So this is where the explosion in the interstate commerce power comes from. So this is why Shakespeare said, first, let's kill all the lawyers. That is correct. He was right. <laughs> As a lawyer, I might lose on that one, but well, he was but, correct. But, but I want to jump to this one. This is a segue to something else I want to talk about. They didn't really mean it the way we always say it. The, it was written, it, it was part of a scene where somebody wanted to grab all the power without law and to become a tyrant. Right. And so the first step was to kill all the lawyers so he wouldn't have anybody in his way. Right. No, no, no legal no niceties. No right. law. Right. No law. And that's, you know, I've said I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a scholar in this, but isn't the United States the only one that has a true founding document like the Constitution? I mean, we've written constitutions yeah. for people based on ours, but... It was superimposed on an already existing country and wasn't the founding right. document. Is that is that accurate? That's generally accurate. And I think the distinction between our Constitution and all other founding charters literally ever is the idea that it was intended to be used as a weapon or a limitation against government. It's not a charter of rights for the citizens. We get our rights where they're inalienable. They come from a creator. They, we have them inherent as human beings. And what that document says is, these are the limitations on what government can do. It was intended to be wheeled against the government as a limitation, and that makes it wholly unique in Huge. all of history. It's very important, right. and nobody understands that. It's to protect us. It's not, to, you know, people think, well, let's get rid of the Constitution so we can get all these things we think are desirable. Well, that can be turned very quickly without one. Yeah, and the original Constitution had 17 enumerated powers. Yeah. And it said everything else is left to the people and the states. Today yeah. they have 17 million powers. I don't know how many, but... And that's all a creation of the courts. So the... We wanted, you and I wanted to talk a little bit about China. I don't want yeah, to... Do, I do. What, what else should we cover on the uh, I think we've done it. Convention. I mean, if folks want to go deep, they I, can I'm, go to conventionofstates.com. as much as, you know, based on... What you said, I think this is a good idea. One last question. Yeah. We have 19, we need 34. What do we do to get there? We continue to build the grassroots. That's the main thing. You know, that's what I'm an expert at really is grassroots activism. Sure. And yeah. my experience is <clears throat> there's nothing that more grassroots can't solve. And so I get into a state, we get close, double the grassroots army, we'll get it done. Because that's the pressure mechanism in the politics and the of our country. And the key for you for grassroots is just simply getting people educated about what the issues are. And once they, once they understand it, they want to make it happen. Yeah, you know, we just did national polling on this. And the, the numbers were extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, I say Republican opposition to this is fringe. I've always said that. And the number was 6.7% of Republicans are opposed to this. Opposed. I mean, that's definitionally fringe. Those are the people who make the strident runaway convention argument. And so that's just a fringe. 50.2% of Democrats are in favor of this. Two-thirds of uh, independents who are, do not affiliate with other parties are in favor of it. I don't know any other issue in the body politic where there's this much unity. Now, to be fair, most people, you say convention of states, they don't even know what it is. So the way we asked the question is we said, calling a convention of states for the purpose of the three things that you read earlier and that's where you get these incredible unifying numbers across the board. So China, yeah, we're both worried. Yeah, I'm very worried. We're, we're worried because uh, they seem to have infiltrated all aspects of America. And they've been at it for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And that's part of an explicit strategy. Yeah. 
You know, there's a lot of reasons I'm worried. So I grew up at the end of the Cold War. Reagan was my first vote. And so, you know, I was just, I considered myself kind of like the, the Cold Warrior. Loved Reagan, loved what he did to bring down the wall. And I thought, I actually thought, okay, well, that's the end of communism and Marxism in my lifetime, at least. It was hard to believe that we would face that again. I didn't understand the rising threat from China, which existed back at that time. Probably one of the biggest geopolitical mistakes in modern history, certainly, is Nixon and China. I think it's fair to say nobody knew that at the time, but I, it, in hindsight, it's certainly a mistake. Uh, this rapprochement with China and, and saying we're going to bring them in commercially and that's going to make them into some proto-democratic state, it hasn't worked out. They've actually invented a new, I would say, more appealing form of communism that's really dangerous. It's infiltrated our country, and I actually think at the highest levels of our government and our institutions, there are a lot of people who admire the Chinese model, who wish that our government had that kind oh of totalitarian authority. Well, you know, there's stories. It, 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 it's not only our government leaders, but it's our business leaders yeah. and our Wall Street leaders. And economists, Paul Krugman, you know, lamenting, wishing we had our government had more power like China. Well, Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, took over from Steve Jobs, was in a room in China about seven, six or seven or eight years ago, and he had such a awe and respect for Xi. He said, when Xi walked into the room, Tim Cook turned to somebody and says, can't you feel the room move, the floor moves? And so he, he was just in awe of this guy, Mark Zuckerberg. You've heard about Mark and his unborn baby? No. Mark's over there at a reception. Xi is there. Mark's there. Mark's wife is there. She's she's expecting a baby. And she asked Xi, asked President Xi, the head of the Chinese Communist Party, would he name his child for him? And Xi said, well, that's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I want to do it. I just don't think he wanted to be associated with Mark well, Zuckerberg. Well, you got Xi showing more discretion than <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg. Mark. Yeah. Now, I... I I believe that's a true story. It may be apocryphal, but it sounds about right. Yeah. And then uh, Ray DeLeo, who runs Bridgewater, he's huge. He's one of the biggest hedge funds in the world. He's in awe of the Chinese way of doing things. And, you know, we start with our rights from God. Right. And we decide to give some of them to the government with enumerated power, but we preserve our rights from God. That's not the Chinese model. No, and I, you know, I, I think you bring up something interesting that goes to something deeper in human nature. So the people that you mentioned, when you mentioned Cook or Zuckerberg or, or a lot of the guys that you know from Wall Street, so much money, they have so much money, so many yeah. assets. That's not the game anymore, I think, for a lot of these guys. They don't, they don't need more money. They don't necessarily even desire more money, but it becomes a desire for power and control, the ability to reshape the world according to the way you think it should be. And so I think when they look at Xi and they look at the Chinese Communist Party, it's successful in a capitalist sense, right? The, uh, incredible amount of money being generated. Well, up to a point. Up I think to that, a point. that could be changing. No, I think it is changing, but I think this is how they've seen it. But then Xi and the party control all of society. And so there's an appeal to human nature in that kind of power and control. And that's the bad part of human nature. That's the fallen part of human nature. Well, that's the bad, coming back to our Constitution, that's the part of the fallen human nature that the founders sought to uh, protect ourselves from.
Right. And so now we have a bunch of our leaders who actually don't acknowledge that that exists. I think there's a fundamental difference between left and right in America, uh, if that's the right way to describe it ideologically. Yeah, and it is the perfectibility of man. So if, if you're a believer in God, then you understand that man is sinful. I think that's human experience, personally. I know it's my personal experience. And the left believes if there were just enough laws... AOC, AOC by the way, is without sin. Right. Long. See, that's because she is God in her mind, right? I, I really believe that. This is what... That these is are, a problem these with are, people who would inflict their views it on is. They feel they're without sin. Total secular humanists. They don't believe in the fallen nature of man. They yeah. believe if there's just enough rules and regulations and they come from me, then everybody will be good. And that's just an incorrect notion of human nature. So China is a country that actually believes it's without sin. It is a, from a state perspective, a godless nation. It is anti-God. And, and as I think I've said during the show before we were talking, I mean, it's not like we're fighting the Soviet Union where, you know, they had all their lined up, people lined up with the nukes and they were over here and we were over on the other side. Now the, the societies are incredibly interconnected. I mean, through both the economy and all the, all the social interactions and, and now social media. And we've got TikTok's the most notorious example, but the Chinese are involved in all social media. I mean, you ran Rumble or Parler. Parler. Yep. You, you, know, you yep. probably saw that. Oh, um, it's a, the amount of data that they're collecting. I just heard at a cybersecurity forum an incredible thing about data collection that I had never heard before, Bill, and you probably heard this from some of the people you talked to. One of the things the Chinese are collecting is scrolling patterns. And apparently... Scrolling patterns? Scrolling patterns. So the way that you in personally scroll through a website, yeah. search on the web, is as unique to you as your fingerprint or your retinal scan. Only you scroll the way you scroll. Only you search the way you search. So we all have a style and it's very individualized. If you get somebody's pattern, you can find them on the web, no matter how anonymous they are. What? You can find them because you can how, search. How do they do that? They search through petabytes of data for particular patterns coming from an IP address. And then they can say, if they know your pattern, well, that's Bill Walton. So this is more than just identifying one ad or one photograph or one word it's the it's all of them taken together and they've yeah. got to, they've developed what do you call it a petabyte well a petabyte is an amount of data it's just okay. a tremendous amount of data but so what they're it's a digital fingerprint for you you know and if you think about it when i first heard this i thought well that seems incredible then i thought well when i search for something i search the same way every time nobody taught me how to search that way but i have a method i'll use when i'm looking for something going to go to certain sites first. What I dig down into is generally sequential. It's just habit. It's how I search for things. It's how I use the Do web. Do you know Dr. Robert Epstein? Epstein? I, I don't know yeah, him, but I know his work. Yeah, he was on the show a work. couple yeah. of times, and he's done all the work on Google. And his, yeah. his view is that that's, that's being used to influence the way people vote. Abs I absolutely agree with that. And the influence is incredible. I think his work unequivocally proves that. And so... What we don't understand, and I actually think you turned me on to a book called Total War. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. China. So, yeah. So I read this book on China. I kind of had a feeling about it before I read the book. Yeah. Written by some Chinese generals after. Yeah, 25 years, 20, 25 years ago. And after our, for, our foray into Iraq, and they analyzed how we do things and then came up with a strategy for how to oppose us. 
but they're in everything. It's it's not just war. It's kinetic, right? Which which is know, guns, actual guns warfare, and missiles right? and stuff like that. It's economic, right? It's uh, legal. I mean, they use this. They use what they call lawfare all over the world. Right. They don't believe in international treaties. The only law they respect is their own. Uh, it's uh, it's what they call elite capture. Yep. You know, so they Peter have almost, Schweitzer wrote a terrific book about that. It's absolutely. just stunning the, the extent to which they and their and their strategies, and it's true in the United States. But it, they've captured most of uh, Africa and Central and South America by getting in and and providing enticements or cash or whatever for the leadership there to to get them right. aligned with. Uh, they don't have to fire a single bullet. So you're dealing with a state actor, almost infinite amounts of money in in regard to this sort of a thing. So they go to people and they make people offers they can't refuse or aren't willing to refuse because it, it's so enticing. And, and I think now so many people are doing it that people think, well, you know, everybody's doing it. In D.C., this is true, right? So many people are on the payroll of China here. It's incredible. Um, I have a visit, visitor down here. I've got Buddy at my feet. I love that you have dogs in the here. studio. You've got a great day. Yeah, so dogs in the studio, I'm always good Buddy's with that. envious because he, he, <laughs> he can't reach the table, so I'm going to pat him down here. But do, do, we sound, uh, do we sound crazy? I mean, it, it seems like we're, you know, we're finding Chinese under every rock. We've got this. That. I don't think we are. I think this is actually happening, and yet there are very few people that are quite focused on this. I think... Five years ago, we sounded crazy. It was still going on. Yeah. But I think now the vast majority of the body politic understands this. And even in Congress, you see moves in Congress to try to push back against the Chinese. I think this is now pretty widely accepted among the American public and in Congress. That one of the few bipartisan issues is that we need to start pushing back on China. So as much as I love our Constitution or our Convention of the States, are we fighting kind of the last war with that? I mean, as, as the... Has the battlefield shifted or it's even worse than uh, abusing the Constitution? Uh, yeah, I would say that is worse, but I would say we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. There are always yeah, multiple issues facing the nation. And so remedying what ails the nation inside is imperative if we're to have the will to fight the wars outside. Now, I think of you as fighting these battles on all fronts. We're about to wrap up here. So what else? I mean, you, you've been involved in an incredibly interesting set of uh, projects what else what else are you doing that we got to know about so i would say and and this is important for people to know about convention of states it's way more than a convention we're building the largest grassroots army in american history we've accomplished that now 5.2 million people in the field uh, and we're engaged in elections so literally two well, we'll be engaged in probably 450 elections in this coming cycle almost all at the state level state legislatures and things like that also school boards Everybody knows about the Virginia election, right? That flipped mm -hmm. the House of Burgess in Virginia by one seat. Yeah. That one seat, the last recount, was a convention of states district captain who got engaged in politics through convention of states who used the volunteers there in Virginia, 150 of them who made over 1,200 calls to low propensity voters. She won by 115 votes. So we can say that the Virginia House is now in Republican hands because of Convention of States activists out there in the field. That's going on all over the country. Uh, Loudoun County here locally in Virginia is another example. Got a call from Ian Pryor, Fight for Schools, the guy leading that fight in Loudoun County. What's the demographic profile of, of, the, of, the, of your grassroots? I think it's probably changing. I mean, yes, I think about the Tea Party, and the Tea Party 
Sarah was very involved in it. We had a lot of, I hope I don't categorize too many people unfairly, white, middle-aged, and el older women yeah. were the Tea oh, yeah. Party. It, yeah. was, it was highly female. And, but that's all changing, and it was also largely white. Now I think we're seeing Hispanics, Latinos, Asians, they're Absolutely. all entering the fray. Is that, yeah. am I, you're, you're close yeah. to it. Yeah, so I would, I would add a little bit more nuance to that. I mean, I think yeah. back in the Tea Party days, it was skewed way older. I mean, that was a that was a big deal, and people were concerned about that. Yeah. I liked it. You get a lot of wisdom out of gray-haired people like us, right? So that's okay. We're there. We're there. Yeah. But people were worried, like, what's going to happen with the next generation? And today what I'm seeing is a lot of, especially, I would say, 30 to 45-year-olds. And I think I would give a lot of credit for that to what's going on on school boards. Now, the mama bears are angry. Dads are going to school board meetings, getting involved. And then those people are starting to say, you know what? If it's this bad at school... There must be a lot of other stuff going on that I'm not looking at. So I'm seeing a lot of younger people get more broadly involved in politics. I'm super excited about that because I think it has a long tail. The Tea Party tail, I would argue, we're at the end of the tail right now. I think the Trump election was kind of the end of the Tea Party movement's tail. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a new movement starting. I think it's broader, and I think it has a much longer tail. I love it. Let's end on a hope of uh, a note of hope. Absolutely. I'm very hopeful. Anyway, th this has been the Bill Walton Show. I've been here with Mark Meckler, who's founded so many things, and we've been talking mainly about the Convention of the States, but basically our topic is freedom and liberty here and, and worldwide. Uh, you can find our show, BillWaltonShow.com. Also, we're on CPAC now every uh, Monday night at uh, 7. Of course, we're, you can time shift that if you just tape it and listen to it later. We're on Rumble. We're on YouTube. I don't think we've said anything here that would get us kicked off YouTube. Not yet. Not but we yet. could if you want. But anyway, we're also <laughs> on all the major audio platforms, Apple, uh, Spotify, whatever. And so uh, uh, stay tuned. And, and we also would love your comments on our website, BillWaltonShow.com. Uh, send us your ideas. We'll, we'll put it into the hopper and see if we can't turn it into something interesting we can all learn about. And as always, stay tuned for what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks. You're, you're fun to talk to. Um, I mean, I, I like just, this is what I love to do more than anything, is just sit around and have conversations like this. Yeah, me too. Yeah, at I, some I, point, I feel like we ought to go Rogan sometime, but I'll, I don't think Kenny's old legs would let him stand up that long. We would have wow. to get him a three chair. Three hours. <laughs> you know, uh, Marine, Marine can handle it, I think. But three hours? Three hours. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.